Test. All right. Thank you all for coming. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Gracious God, I thank you, Lord, for this night. I thank you for an opportunity for us to together uh, dive into such a foundational book, Lord. And I pray that as we go along, you would reveal your truth to us um, so clearly, God. Help us to see you as you are. Help us to understand what it is you would have us know in the book of Genesis, God. And help us to uh, not just know it, Lord, but I pray the word would take root in our hearts and that we would apply it to our lives, that we can shine your light, Lord, reflect who you are, and Lord, that the world would see you. So that's my prayer for this study, Lord. So just be with us. Work by your spirit, I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, well, welcome to our Genesis study. I'm going to start where I started our last Bible study and say that is my email address. If you have any questions, please feel free to email me. Send me the questions. I want to answer every question you have. Um, but even though I am going to open it up for questions at the end of each session, I would like to keep the questions um, to clarifications or questions about what we actually talked about in that study. But if you have other questions, how something we talked about might relate to something else, track me down or shoot me an email. So if you joined us for a Revelation study, this is going to be a little bit different because the book of Genesis is mostly straight narrative. There aren't going to be a ton of symbols to decipher, so I won't need to explain every point by using 15 other scriptures to tell you how I came to that conclusion. Um, there's going to be some of that, especially in the early going, but not a whole lot. And tonight, for our introduction, it's going to be a little different than the rest of the studies are going to be, because tonight we're laying the groundwork for how to properly understand the book. I think this is probably also going to be the longest study of a series, so don't think you're going to come back every night. It's going to take three hours like it is tonight. Okay, Barbara's listening. So, we begin now with our introduction to the book of Genesis. Let's begin with who wrote the book. This is not as easy a question to answer as we might think. Of course, in conservative Christianity today, the answer is assumed. Moses wrote the book of Genesis, right? Well, I just want to point out that nowhere in Scripture is Moses credited with writing Genesis. In Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, we are told expressly that Moses wrote down what God told him to write. In Deuteronomy, we're told that those are the words that Moses spoke. In the New Testament, the law of Moses is used specifically in reference to quotes or allusions from only Exodus, Leviticus, or Deuteronomy. On top of that, the phrase, the law of Moses, can be and has been understood different ways. It can mean the law that Moses wrote, it can mean the law that Moses mediated with no regard to authorship. It can even mean the books with Moses as its main character with no regard to authorship. But regardless, however you want to interpret the phrase, nowhere in the Bible is the book of Genesis included in that group of books associated with Moses. Now, the book of Genesis was associated with Moses in Jewish literature from the Second Temple period. That's a period from about 500 B.C. to 70 A.D., from the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity until the Romans destroyed the temple again in 70 AD. In that period, all the Jewish writings seem to assume Moses is the author. Early Christianity also attributed Genesis to Moses, 
likely because that was the Jewish, Jewish tradition. But when you think about it, all of these writings, even the Second Temple Jewish writings, are all a thousand or more years after the fact. So did Moses write the book of Genesis? Well, it's the reason I'm going down this trail here, and we need to understand something. What I'm about to say is practically taboo in evangelical circles. You ready? The Bible didn't fall out of heaven. What do I mean by that? Well, there's this prevailing notion in evangelicalism that the Bible is so different from any other writing in the world that the process of writing had to have itself been different than any other writing in the world, right? The Holy Spirit had to have somehow magically taken controls of the writers and produced the Bible. Or at the least, he supernaturally guided them to use the exact words he wanted on the parchment. After all, it is the word of God. It's inerrant and it's infallible. And I agree with both of those things. All of the early Reformed confessions state the Bible is both inerrant and infallible. It doesn't contain errors, and even more, it can't contain errors because it is the word of God. They are writings inspired by the Holy Spirit. But all of those confessions, and really anyone who stops to think about it, will realize this only applies to the original books, the original manuscripts, what we call the autographs, the original writing by the original author or authors in its original completed form. And I'm going to go a step further, and I'm going to echo Dr. Michael Heiser in saying this. When it comes to the Old Testament, we need to understand that inspiration is a process, not an event. So while what we have today we can be confident in, and we can know, even by modern scientific and historical means, that the overwhelming majority, when I say overwhelming, I'm talking like 99% of what we have today is what the original completed book said, but realize that our modern translations are not inerrant and infallible. The manuscripts our Bibles are based on are not inerrant and infallible. And while the Bible is different because it is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit did superintend its writing, it is also the product of humans, and this seems to get lost. The Old Testament we have today has gone through a process. And it's not a process like the Avis will tell you, oh, it's like playing grapevine, and by the time you get to the end, it's something totally different. No, it's not what it is. That's not what I'm saying. But the writings that are English translations of the Old Testament are based on have all gone through a process to get to their completed form. And it's that process that the Holy Spirit superintended. In other words, Moses, or whoever we decide wrote Genesis, didn't just sit down one day and write Genesis under a supernatural anointing. Like all historical records, there was a process of editing. There was a process of redacting. There was a process of adding that happened over time. There were various sources used to pull the material together. There were changes made between the original writings and the oldest manuscripts we still have. Some by mistake, yes, but some changes were made on purpose after the fact. Now, while it's not the case with the New Testament, it is true of the Old Testament because of how long ago the originals were written, especially the early books like Genesis. There were purposeful changes made. Now, when it comes to Genesis, add to that that there are four, that's four, different surviving traditions that vary from each other. We have what's known as the Masoretic Text. That's what our English Bibles are largely based on. It's the text we're most familiar with, but it's based on manuscripts from the first century AD. The Masoretic Text didn't reach its completed form until late in the first millennium AD. 
AD, I'm saying AD. Sometime between 600 and 1000 AD. Now it is based on much earlier manuscripts and traditions and tried to preserve that as closely as it could, but it's by no means old. Second, we have the version of Genesis from the Samaritan Pentateuch. The earliest complete manuscript of that dates back to the 14th century AD. Now, if you know your history and you know your New Testament, you know the Samaritans were the mixed-breed Jews that were reestablished in the Promised Land by the Assyrians. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They said, that's the whole Bible. But they had their own version of those books. There were a whole lot of differences between their books and what we have in our Bibles. Most are minor, but there are some major ones. Like in the Samaritan Pentateuch, God commands the temple to be built on Mount Gerizim, and not in Jerusalem. That's the context of Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well in John 4. Third, we have what's called the Septuagint. It is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is the oldest complete manuscript we have, dating back to probably the second century BC. If you've ever read the Greek Old Testament, you know there are spots where there are some very noticeable differences between it and the text that our Bibles are based on. Finally, we have the fragments of Genesis found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were pretty recent discovery, but some of these are the oldest Hebrew fragments that we have, and some are believed to be the most reliable fragments. Now, if you have a good modern translation of the Bible, you'll see footnotes throughout your Old Testament telling you that the translators in this spot opted to use the Dead Sea Scrolls, or in this spot opted to use the Septuagint because they were found to be more reliable. Now, add to that, the obvious fact that everything in the book of Genesis happened way before the writer, even if it was Moses, way before the writer lived, long before. So what we read in the book of Genesis, either way, was not recorded for a very long time after the fact and only known to the writer of the book through oral traditions that were preserved for centuries or even millennia. So this authorship question isn't as black and white as we think. Now. I have been told by some that discussing things like this can really shake the faith of people. It can shake their confidence in the Bible. But I disagree. I'll tell you why. Knowing how the Old Testament has come to us has actually strengthened my confidence in the Bible. Knowing that it didn't just drop out of heaven is a good thing. Knowing the writers of the Bible didn't go into some spirit-induced trance and just write out these books in a sitting is good. Because I understand the truth, I don't have to bury my head in the sand when there is a discrepancy in the text, and they're there. I don't have to come up with some of the outrageous explanations some people do to explain the differences between the text or the fact that some of the, the, the places named in Genesis didn't exist for a thousand years after Moses. I'm comforted, knowing the book of Genesis was written just like I'd expect any history to be written, because I can trust that God oversaw the entire process. Because listen, if Moses just sat down one day and wrote the book of Genesis as God miraculously inspired him, then there are problems with God that we can't explain. And that would shake my confidence more than anything. I'm going to give you a few examples here of intentional changes we're going to find as we go through the book of Genesis. Because I want us to see what we're dealing with here. Because my point isn't so much who wrote the book as it is how the book that we have came to be written. All right, we're told a few times where Abraham was originally from before God called him. We're told twice in chapter 11 and once in chapter 15. We're told in Genesis 11:28 28, 
that Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. Three verses later, we read, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law and his, his son Abram's wife and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Finally, in Genesis 15, and this is God talking. And he said to him, to Abraham, I am Yahweh who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So note, not only does the author of Genesis call Abraham's native land Ur of the Chaldeans, but it's written here that Yahweh himself says it. And here's the problem. The Chaldeans as a people didn't exist until the 9th century B.C. In fact, we don't even read of them again in the Bible until the very end of 2 Kings when Judah's about to go into captivity, and that's in the 7th century B.C. When Abraham lived in Ur, there was no such thing as the Chaldeans. Have we found a mistake? Or how about this? We'll see later on in our study that Abraham's nephew Lot is taken captive. And in chapter 14, Abraham rescues him. And we read this, when Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, boarded in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. We have the same problem here. Dan wasn't a place until very late in the conquest of the Promised Land. It's until the end of the book of Judges that Dan comes into existence, centuries after Moses died. And this isn't the tribal inheritance of Dan, this is a city in the extreme north of Israel. If you read through the books of Samuel or Kings or Chronicles, you'll see an expression often talking about something happened from Dan to Beersheba, which just means all of Israel, right? Dan, the northernmost point, Beersheba, the southernmost point. So going as far as Dan means going as far north in Israel as possible. But in Abraham's day, not only was there no Dan, there was no Israel. In Moses' day, there was no place called Dan. Now, is this a mistake that Dan is mentioned here centuries before it even existed? Well, not if we understand how the book of Genesis has come to be. There is no mistake, despite what the liberal Christians and the non-Christians want to tell us. What happened? Well, later editors added the references to the Chaldeans and to the city of Dan. They added them after these places existed to clarify for the audience of their day where these events took place. Because there were, in the ancient world, multiple places named Ur. The audience, after the conquest, probably wouldn't know what the old name for Dan was off the top of their heads. But this doesn't mean the Bible's any less inspired. It most certainly is, but it didn't fall from heaven in its completed form. It took time. There were edits. There were additions. And God controlled all of it to give us his inspired word. Look, just speaking for myself, I find it far easier to believe that God could sovereignly produce the book of Genesis over centuries that it is to believe God was going to strike Moses with a lightning bolt of inspiration and then let man subsequently mess the whole book up after the fact. So what does this have to do with whether or not Moses wrote the book? Like I said, I just want us to realize that this is how the Old Testament books were transmitted to us. There were multiple hands in the pot. There were centuries of oral transmission. There were varying oral traditions. There were differing records of the histories that some of the Bible is based on. There were multiple authors, there were changes, and there were additions to what was originally written. So, if you were to ask me to take a hard stance and say, Lee, who wrote the book of Genesis? I would say, I have no idea. 
Now, while the same types of edits and redactions happened with the other four books of the Pentateuch, I would absolutely affirm Moses as the writer of those books. You know why? The Bible affirms it. No question in my mind. But there is no inspired writing that says Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Like I said, all we have are records written about a thousand years after the fact. Now, that being said, I don't have a good reason to deny Mosaic authorship, and I will accept the tradition until or unless I have good reason to doubt it. All about to say, that's how we're going to proceed in our study, okay? We're going to proceed with this understanding of inspiration that it was a process while we assume that Moses was substantially the author of the book. So assuming Moses is the author of the book, the question is, why did Moses write the book? Well, I can understand why Moses would find it important to write down the history of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, as the people of Israel wandered around the wilderness for 40 years waiting for God to fulfill his promise. Because we'll see, Abraham had to wait. Jacob had to wait. Joseph had to wait. It would be encouragement to somebody who was waiting on God because over and over again in the book of Genesis, no matter how long his people had to wait, no matter how bleak the situation seemed, God always worked it out every single time. But that explains Genesis 12 to 50. Why would Moses write Genesis 1 to 11? Well, here's where we're going to get even more hazy. There's good reason to believe that these chapters are some of the last of the Old Testament to be written. I won't bore you with all the details. But as we'll see, much of what is written in these chapters is very clearly a polemic or a defense against pagan mythology. Things like mythological versions of creation and the flood and a whole pantheon of gods. And a lot of these writings Genesis is speaking against were written much later than the rest of the books of Moses. However, I want to offer another possible explanation for the striking similarities between these chapters and the Babylonian and the Canaanite and even the later Greek myths. It could simply be, and we'll see in our study that it was, fallen angels twisting the truth after the fact. Because lying is kind of their thing. But even if we go with that theory, let's think once again about the fact that Moses didn't just sit down and write the book of Genesis, right? So that means Moses didn't just sit down and write the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus and say, I got two more to go, guys, wait, and just keep on going. That's not how it works. He, just like any other writer, had to have a real time in history reason for writing everything he wrote. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written it. So think about the history of Israel and what God explicitly tells Moses to write. I mean, that's a good reason to write, right? If God tells me to write something down, I'm going to write it down. God tells Moses to write down a whole litany of commandments, to write down the instructions for the tabernacle, to write down things like rules for the feasts, the laws about the offerings, the laws for the priests, the censuses and numbers. So I would think the first thing Moses wrote down, the very first part of the Bible written, was what Moses received directly from God, the things he was told to write. Then, to keep it all in context, he, or maybe someone else, who knows, went back and filled in the history surrounding these things. Someone wrote about the idolatry of the golden calf, the building of a tabernacle, the sins of Nadab and Abihu, the failures of that first generation, and all these constant failures we read about with Israel. Then, going back from the giving of the law, someone would fill in the details of Moses' life, of his birth, his adoption by the daughter of Pharaoh, 
his running away to Midian, God's appearance to him, and then the Exodus. Because why? These would also encourage Israel to be patient and wait on God because he just saved them from the worst of circumstances. Then Deuteronomy is Moses' final sermon. He summarizes the law for Israel before they take the land. And this was almost certainly written down by someone else, though spoken by Moses. I mean, at the end of the book, whoever the writer is writes about Moses' death. Pretty sure that wasn't Moses. So when did Moses write Genesis? Well, if you read the beginning of Exodus, you'll notice the first few verses of Exodus kind of sum up the last five chapters of Genesis. Exodus begins by talking about Israel's coming into Egypt. We read, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, then Joseph died. You know what this is? This is Genesis 46 to 50 in a nutshell. So, it's likely Moses wrote Genesis 12 to 50 after this, based on oral traditions that Israel had preserved, after he wrote the historical portions of Exodus up to the giving of law, and once again he did that to give encouragement to that second generation of Israelites who were about to take the promised land. And if Moses wrote them, he would have written Genesis 1 to 11 last. But why would he write it? We're going to see. Genesis 1 through 11 is the basis for everything God was doing with his people, not just for the first five books of the Bible, but for the entire Old Testament, into the New Testament, up until tonight, and into eternity. So it told the people of Israel, the original audience, what their purpose was and why they should obey God and all of his commands. It revealed to them why the law was meant to be a reminder of sin and a pointer to their need for a righteousness they couldn't achieve by the law. In short, it told them who God was and that he had an eternal plan that they were a part of. It revealed the truth of how and why they got to where they were. And we're going to see as we go through the book, the where is important. If you notice throughout the entire Old Testament, there are basically only three places where the whole history goes down. Palestine, obviously, the land of Canaan, Egypt, and Mesopotamia. This is the stage for the Old Testament. Now also realize that Israel and Moses were coming out of an Egyptian context, coming into the Promised Land. We know that Moses was raised as an Egyptian. When Stephen, the first Christian martyr, gives his speech before his death, he says Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So if we think about Moses' upbringing, it's clear he would have been much more familiar with the pagan religion of Egypt than he was with Yahweh. Then he spends 40 years married to the daughter of a pagan priest. Now, this is why... When Yahweh appears to Moses, Moses isn't all like, Yahweh, I've been waiting for you. No, what does he say? Go find someone else. Plus, over the course of 400 years, before the Exodus, years that Yahweh was not directly involved with his people, as Israel was in Egypt, what religion would they have known? They weren't worshiping Yahweh. Even when we read of their oppression, we read this in Exodus 2. During those, many, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God 
knew. You know what this is telling us? The people of Israel didn't beseech Yahweh. They didn't pray to him. It's not what it says. So let me say they, know, they, they knew him. You know what this tells us? God knew them. Even when they forgot him, God knew them. And of course, the nation that began in captivity, if you know your Old Testament, ends in captivity. Worse, the captivity would be a return to the wholesale sin of the world in Babel. And why did they go into captivity? Because the land that Israel would inhabit in Palestine would be full of pagans, false religion. And Israel, over and over again, is told not to do what? Not to worship the gods of the nations. It's the very first commandment. So what Genesis 1 through 11 provides is the truth of what God's people were created to be and to do, even when they were in the midst of a world that didn't worship God. Israel could relate to that. I think we can relate to that. Genesis 1 through 11 also explains why sin and the worship of false gods is so prevalent in the world. Moses wrote it so that Israel would know the truth and would know the only true God. Because remember, coming out of Egypt, they didn't know him. There were oral traditions, sure, but there was no established Yahweh worship, which is why when Moses first comes to Israel, they're so hesitant, right? It's why God gives him the signs of the staff and the leprosy and the blood to prove that Yahweh was real. So in these chapters, the first 11 chapters of the Bible, Moses preserves for them the truth that every creation, flood, and God myth of every other nation is based on. But most importantly, Genesis 1 through 11 reveals the God whose plan from the very beginning is not for one nation, but for the whole world. And this is why we're going to spend a lot of time in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. All right, so now we know who wrote the book and why. We're going to work under the assumption that Moses originally wrote the book of Genesis for the benefit of that second generation of the freed Israelites as they prepared to enter the promised land. So the next question is, when? There's two parts of this question. First, when was the book written? There's a lot of debate about this. There's a lot of debate about everything in Genesis. Let's get that out of the way right up front, all right? Now, the earliest it is generally believed it could have been written was at the end of the 15th century BC because the earliest date historians generally agree the Exodus could have taken place was 1445 B.C. Then we know Moses led Israel for 40 years after the Exodus, so that's when all of this would have had to have been written. The latest date historians generally believe the Exodus could have taken place is around 1290 B.C. This would make Genesis the product of the mid-13th century B.C. And as I said, there are others who read the parallels between Genesis 1 through 11 and look at Babylonian myths, and even later Greek myths, and they placed the writing of Genesis sometime right after the Babylonian captivity, somewhere around the 6th century BC. So when was the book written? We have no idea. But if we want to affirm Mosaic authorship, then we have to choose one of those early dates. So somewhere in the middle of the second millennia BC. And there are a million articles, blogs, and books written on this, so I encourage you, if this interests you, please do some research. At the end of the night, there's some journal articles that are printed on this table over here, three different ones about some stuff we're going to cover. If you're interested, take it and look a little further into it. So we don't know when the book was written, but here's the big question. When did the events recorded in the book take place? Now, obviously, the creation narrative takes place in the beginning. But when was that? And when was the flood? When did Babel happen? When was Abraham born? What about everything that follows? Well. 
The book of Genesis, understand this, the book of Genesis records more than half of history. Well more. From the dawn of time until Israel goes into Egypt covers more time than that moment until tonight. Now, there's a lot of debate over this, too. Some of you might be familiar with the young earth, old earth debate. It's a big thing these days, isn't it? Many today believe that science has proven the universe and the earth are billions of years old, but science has actually done no such thing. Unless you want to go into the, to the debate with a host of assumptions that can't be proven scientifically, you can't believe it's settled by any matter. But by the same token, the standard Christian young earth arguments have the same problem. They don't really hold water, because believing it requires some assumptions that aren't even biblical. Maybe you're familiar with what's called the Usher chronology. Maybe you don't even know what it's called. Well, a man named James Usher in the 17th century calculated all the years of the Old Testament up until the time of the Maccabean Revolt, because we have ample history to tell us when that happened. So we started there, worked backwards, and figured out when the earth was created to the day, mind you. No joke. He took every chronological record in the Bible, including ages of when men had their sons, and he built the whole family tree going back to Adam and determined the whole world was created on October 22nd, 4004 BC. You ever heard the 4004 BC? This is actually what I was taught. This was proven in the 19th century, but I was taught this in the 21st century, and a lot of churches still teach this. But it can be disproven right from the Bible. First of all, and of course there's debate about this, you can't assume the genealogies in the book of Genesis are exhaustive and don't skip generations. In fact, we're going to see that they do. Most ancient genealogies do. In most ancient Near East writings, lists of even royal families would skip generations to omit the irrelevant or the problematic people to get them right out of their family tree. But we can look at the Bible and see what's going on. The Bible skips generations in plenty of places that are obvious. Did you ever compare Matthew's genealogy of Abraham to Jesus and Luke's genealogy of Abraham to Jesus? Matthew is 42 generations. Luke is 57 generations. If we look at the book of Exodus, based on the generations that are listed in multiple places, Moses is the great-grandson of Levi. And by the time Levi came to Egypt, Moses' grandfather, Kohath, was already born. In Genesis 46, we read, now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn son, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jacob, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Memorai. These went into Egypt. Then we get this genealogy in Exodus 6. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Memorai. The years of the life of Levi being... 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. That'll become important in a minute. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushai. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. So, Kohath, Moses' grandfather, lived to be 133. His oldest son, Amram, Moses' father, lived to be 137. Let's make the completely unreasonable assumption that each of these guys had their kids the last year they lived. Let's assume Kohath was born the day before Israel came to Egypt. It's 133 years plus 137 years plus 80 years, which is how old Moses was when the Exodus happened, and we get 350 years. 
That doesn't check out when we're told the time the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. See, the math ain't mathin', as they say. And we usually read right past these things, and that's okay, because not knowing this, not realizing this, doesn't affect how we understand the main points of the narrative. But now that we know this, we have to make a decision. Either there's a mistake in the Bible, or the Bible skips generations. Either way, we can calculate the beginning of Genesis 1. But there's more. Let's talk about the ages of some of the men in the book of Genesis. Many believe the ages given in Genesis for the earliest generations aren't meant to be literal years. In a whole host of other ancient Near Eastern literature, the heroes of history, who were real people, are said in the histories of these nations to have lived thousands or even tens of thousands of years. See, many cultures would deify their heroes and their kings, and they would make the greatest men in their history live the longest to show how great they were. So, maybe Moses is doing something symbolic with the ages of the earliest generations. I don't know that, but I can't rule it out. Or maybe, and I find this more likely, he was doing something theological. I'm going to give you an example. This is also things we just tend to fly by and don't really think about it, and it's still okay, as long as we understand the nature of the Old Testament writings. At the end of Genesis 11, we're introduced to Abraham and his father. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Abram Nahor, and Haran. Okay, this isn't saying Terah had triplets. The same type of expression is used often, like when we're told Noah, when he was 500, fathered three sons. The point is, when Terah was 70, he had three sons, and the oldest was Abram, because he's mentioned first. So Abram was born by the time Terah was 70, likely when he was younger, but let's assume the 70. We'll read this a few verses later. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans, there it is, to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now do the math. How old was Abraham when Terah died, if he was born when Terah was 70? He had to be 135 years old. But here's the problem. Abraham is told by God after Terah dies to leave Haran and go to Canaan. The very next verse starts chapter 12, where God says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, realizing the chapter and verse distinctions aren't part of the original writings, and realizing there's a lot of leeway with translating Hebrew, and the word here now is literally the word for ends, like we just read in 1132, this is what we really have. It's my own translation of the Bible. Ready? The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran, and the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. There's a chronology being laid out here. Terah dies, and only then does God tell Abraham to go to Canaan. But that presents a problem a few verses later when we read, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So either Terah's age is a mistake, the age of his death is a mistake, or Abraham's age is a mistake, or Moses is doing something completely different with the ages. Maybe making Abraham wait 25 years for the promise to start. Um, the promise being realized would have meant something to the younger generation of Israel. Maybe Moses uses the age of 100 as a sim symbolic representation of the completion of God's promise when Isaac is born. Or maybe the oral traditions varied and poor Moses is just doing the best that he can. In addition, 
the ages of the men in the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 10 vary between all those different traditions that we talked about. In some cases, in a big way. In some cases, the Septuagint and the Samaritan Pentateuch agree against our Bibles. So again, trying to figure out the date of the earth is in no way possible. If you were to ask me, and I have the microphone, the earth is far younger than billions of years, but it's definitely older than 6,027 years. There's scientific reasons to believe the earth is tens of thousands of years old. And I don't think the Bible excludes that, so that's actually where I land. And again, a ton of research has been done, a lot has been written, you can find some stuff over there. The point is, when the book was written, and exactly how much time it covers can't be known, but that's irrelevant, because here's the point. The book of Genesis has a theological purpose, not a historical purpose. I'm going to repeat this, because this is the point, okay? The book of Genesis has a theological purpose, not a historical purpose. Yes, what the book of Genesis records actually happened. Moses wanted the people of Israel to know what actually happened, because he wanted to see the history of their people, so they could persevere through their struggles. But more than that, Moses wants them to know God, wants to know what God has done, and wanted them to learn to rely on God. Because remember who the audience of the original book was. It is the second generation of Israelites after the Exodus. This is the offspring of those who rebelled against God and died over the course of 40 years in the wilderness. And unlike Moses and that oldest generation, they would not have been indoctrinated into Egyptian culture and religion. And either they saw with their own eyes Yahweh carry out judgment on Egypt, or they were born afterwards and knew no God but Yahweh. But they were still going into Canaan, which was a hotbed of paganism. Moses would want them to know God, to trust God, and to know what disobedience costs. He'd want them to know that the other gods are false gods, and that following them means certain judgment. He wanted them to know that God fulfills his promises. He wanted them to know that God was going to fulfill his promise to them, and it was incumbent upon them and their children to keep what God was giving them. That's why Moses wrote the book. We had to keep that in mind throughout. Now let's discuss an outline of the book. Most broadly, Genesis 1 through 11 covers what's known as primeval history. It records the history from creation to the spread of man over the earth as a result of the Babel incident. This covers an undetermined amount of time, if you were to ask me, tens of thousands of years. Then, Genesis 12 to 50 is what is known as the patriarchal period. Patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This portion records the history of God calling a particular man, establishing a particular people, both physical and spiritual, and this spans a couple hundred years or so. Many break the book down further and exclude the Joseph story from that because Joseph isn't technically a patriarch. Some break it down further by dividing the patriarchal narratives into three parts between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we're not going to do any of that. For our purposes, we're going to break the book down into ten separate portions. And the reason we're going to do that is that Moses, or whoever wrote it, broke the book down into ten portions for theological purposes. There are ten times in the book of Genesis that a passage begins with the words, these are the generations of. It's actually where we get our name for the book of Genesis. In the Greek Old Testament, the Greek word for generation is the word genesis. 
That's where we get our, our name for the book. This is why Matthew starts his gospel the way he does. He, he uses the same exact wording the Old Testament uses in Genesis because he wants us to see the culmination of all of that is Jesus Christ. The first four words of his gospel, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, it's literally the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. That's what it says. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, the book isn't called Genesis. Like most Hebrew books, it just takes its name from the first word of the book, Bereshith, translated in the beginning. But the Jews broke the book of Bereshith down into 10 sections, which they called the Toledoth sections. The word Toledoth in Hebrew means generations. The word generations, or Toledoth, is the word used to begin each of the 10 sections of Genesis. Genesis 2.4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And David, the Lord God, made the earth and the heavens. And included in this would be chapter 1, because from 2, 4 on is a retelling of the same story with different details. Next is Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. This traces Adam down to Seth and the line of God's spiritual people all the way down to Noah. Then we have these are the generations of Noah in chapter 6. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. This story concludes with the story of the flood. Then we have what's known as the table of nations. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. This details the generations of Noah's sons, including the distribution of people all over the earth after the Babylon incident. Then we have the offspring of Shem. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arphaxad two years after the flood. And that genealogy ends with our buddy Terah. And that's where the next section begins. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. And this section spans the better part of 15 chapters, and it focuses on the life of Abraham. And by the way, I'm just going to call him Abraham right from the get. I mean, I was going to go with Abraham, even if he's not called that until later. It's just easier. The next section covers Abraham's firstborn son. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. Then we move to Abraham's second son, and we spend a good portion of time on him and his sons. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. For Isaac's sons, we see the same pattern repeated. Genealogy of the eldest son, Esau. Genealogy of the younger son, Jacob. And that's the last section of the book. It focuses on Joseph from there. And what we're going to do is we're going to see the theological importance of each of these sections as we go. We're going to see why the writer broke it down this way. Finally, I want to establish a few rules for interpreting the book of Genesis. We are blessed to stand where we do in history. We live on this side of the cross. We live after the completion of the biblical canon. We live after the sending of the Spirit to indwell believers. What that means is we actually have benefits that the original and intended audience of the book of Genesis did not have. We know that the Old Testament points us to Christ. We have the New Testament writer's interpretation of the Old Testament. We have the spirit to guide us in our understanding. We can understand what is written in the Old Testament much more fully than those who actually lived in Old Testament times, who they were actually written to. Paul says this in what's written in the Old Testament. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So we're going to interpret the book of Genesis using the whole picture 
that we have where we stand in history. We will use the lens of Christ and the New Testament writer's interpretation of the Olds to understand the book of Genesis. But there's a big but there. We have the ability to understand the book now more than at any other point in history. But to understand the book, we need to understand it like the original audience would have and how Moses intended it to be understood. Because though the Bible was written for us, the Bible was not written to us. We have to take what is being communicated in its original context. We have to take the point that Moses is making for his intended audience, and we need to interpret that through the lens of Christ. So we're going to endeavor to understand the authorial intent, but interpret the significance of it using all we know on this side of the cross. Okay, a few other rules that we're going to have to follow. Number one, do not impose 21st century writing rules on a book written 3,500 years ago. Edits and changes were a norm that would in no way affect who the people believe authored a book. It wouldn't affect how accurate they believed the book was. Writing was different then. Paraphrasing, even direct quotes, was perfectly acceptable and nobody thought it was a mistake or a misquote. An author making intentional changes to facts to make theological points did not render the history untrue. Just look at the three synoptic, synoptic gospels and see how they still did that even in Jesus' day. Number two, don't impose 21st century knowledge on a book written 3,500 years ago. We know more about everything now than they did then. Literally everything. So the Bible, realize, is not a scientific book. While it's completely true, it does not communicate in 21st century scientific terms. It communicates in terms that Moses and that second generation of Israel's, Israelites would have understood using the accepted science at the time. That's why we need to think theologically and not scientifically. The Bible communicates using theological language, not scientific. It communicates according to the original audience's understanding of the world. As an example, Adam, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Canaanites, Moses, and all of Israel, even into the New Testament, believed the earth was flat and stood on physical pillars. They believed there was a physical dome over the earth that separated it from the heavens. This is the point of view the book of Genesis is written from. Third, don't impose 21st century cultural norms on a book written 3,500 years ago. Don't cancel the book of Genesis, please. Is a man selling his daughter off into marriage wrong? In our society, it would be, right? In the ancient world, it wasn't wrong. And believe it or not, girls were sold off as soon as they could bear children. Some women were married at age 11. That's the way it was. There were norms in the world then that today would be called sexist or racist. There are very evident and unchangeable class distinctions, and all of these things were accepted as norms, and in some cases, they were even ethical. Slavery was accepted and even embraced as a great option by some people who sold themselves into it. This is the context into which God revealed himself. He did not say things that would not be understood as he revealed himself. That's just how gracious he is. He speaks in terms that his people can understand. He meets us where we are, and speaks to us so we can understand. That's what he did for the original audience of Genesis. So, that means, assuming Moses was substantially the author of the book, we're going to look at the book two ways throughout. One, we are going to consider Moses' near purpose in what he says. What was he communicating to Israel? 
What was he communicating to Israel in their terms, in their situation, as they're in the wilderness preparing to enter the promised land? Why did God inspire Moses to include what he did and omit everything else? And then two, we're going to consider God's overarching purpose from our standpoint with the completed canon and the New Testament's interpretation of the old at our disposal. What does each section reveal to us about God and his purpose for his people, including us? And how does Christ fit into it all? I'm going to offer one final warning, and this is a big one, okay? I pray this doesn't wind up as bad as that first Revelation study did, if you were here for it. But as we go through the book, I am going to ask you to think differently than you may have ever thought about some of what we're going to read. I've already done a little of that tonight. There are a whole bunch of prevailing notions in modern evangelicalism, our own tradition that we have imposed upon the Bible, that we have probably all been taught, that are just plain wrong. Realize almost none, nothing of what I'm going to say is original to me or something new. It's not known because our tradition is so firmly entrenched in our churches. So I'm going to ask you all to have an open mind. You know me. You don't have to agree with me on these points. I really am okay with that. But if you disagree, I'm going to ask you to disagree for a reason other than I was never taught this before or I was taught to believe something else. Disagree with me. But disagree because you believe the Bible tells you to. That's all I ask. And that's it. I hope we enjoy our walk through Genesis together and we're going to begin next week in Genesis 1.